0: What a blessed country that is that we long for, and we are going to turn this morning to Matthew eighteen and see how that beautiful golden country comes about in this life as it yet looks forward to the one to come. We are in this section of scripture that is otherwise some people know it as the section on church discipline, though i 've prefaced it before that. We don't get to discipline until the latter part of this, and so we're going to begin reading at verse eight, uh, 15, at verse uh, of chapter 18 of Matthew 18, understanding that the first part of that, when one goes, when a couple go, uh, we're in the informal time of, of building that relationship back that was once broken. We're going to peek into the beginning of what we would now turn the corner to see as the formal official discipline of the church we're going to look at just verse 17 but if you have your bibles and let me encourage you to bring your bibles Uh, this is preaching but it's preaching now with great uh, illumination from the word and we will have to be looking at some teaching along in the preaching time and looking at different passages which we'll do today And we're going to be focusing on verse 17, but only as a preface to what will begin to unfold next Lord's Day, Lord willing, or the following week. So now hear the word of God. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother, but if he will not hear you... Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Yet I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Our gracious Father, we ask that your Spirit would attend the preaching of your word now with power. And pray that you would stir up the gift in this preacher, in this minister of the gospel, to which you have called me years ago, to which you have equipped me with the Spirit, and which is the purpose for now which I fulfill in the pulpit, to be faithful to the Word of God and faithful to, to the church's head, Christ Himself. We pray that you would stir up that gift which is not characterized by fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. You would now establish Your Word in the hearts of Your people. You would give them a willingness to listen and to hear, not from the words of a man, but from the words of God. And may we tune our ears in to our Lord Jesus, who is the preacher of the hour. And so we ask that the Spirit would equip us, empower us, and take this Word now and engraft it deeply into our hearts, that we may receive it with gladness, And go and be doers of the word, not mere hearers only. So we ask that you would send this forth now in this timely hour to bring forth the fruit and the peaceable fruits of righteousness for which it is intended. And we pray that you would open up our understanding and that you would give us um, um, a resolve to be obedient to your word and all those things whatsoever Christ our Lord has taught us as disciples. And we pray this in his glorious name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we come to the place now where we are approaching that next section. And that starts there in verse 17. The next step is this. But if he refuses to hear them, that is, the original offender who's now brought one or two more, and now the two or three there are approaching him and he refuses to hear them, Tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you. Let him be to you Jews, if you will, because he's writing this to the audience, which is primarily Jewish. So you've got to think in terms of a Jew, what a Jew would think as a heathen and a tax collector here. And when there is conflict where sin is involved... I wonder how many folks actually feel right about verse 17. I mean, is that right? For real? And one person goes and he confronts an offending person with the sin, and that person doesn't listen. So he takes with him a couple more, and the person still doesn't listen. So then the matter comes before the whole church. And if the offender does not listen to them, he is put out of the church, and the whole church is to view that person as one who does not have a credible profession of faith, even though that offending person would claim he still did. He would be to that church as a heathen and a tax collector would be to a Jew, which is often a fraud and a cheat. I wonder how many people here, feel that what the Scripture is not suggesting, but what the Scripture is here commanding in verse 17 is right? Do we question that? I'm asking heritage now. I'm not asking the people out there. Do we feel that what verse 17 is saying is right? There have been many in the church when it comes to this last step, have taken the church and its officers to court to sue them over defamation. They didn't believe it was right. And almost inevitably, when a church comes to this last step in this particular process, that people will leave the church when it's carried out. Almost inevitably don't know if that would happen here i trust that it would not i think that you are beyond that and would understand that but i'm telling you the majority of churches that ever practice this which are few and far between these days the ones that do and when they have to do this inevitably other church members will leave So I wonder how many of you at Heritage Us are resolved that this is something that the church must practice. You see, there's a very sobering spirit upon us right now because this is, this as I say, it's not even pleasant when we have to go confront someone over their own sin against us. It's not pleasant when we have to take two or three more. It's certainly not pleasant when it has to be escalated to the place of formal, official discipline. But to to, to many people, this passage doesn't make sense. It sounds... Wrong to a number of people who attend churches. It sounds harsh. It sounds like it encourages judgmentalism. Who are we to judge the rest? It sounds hypocritical because who among us is not guilty of sin? Yeah? But it is clearly in the Scripture, and therefore we have to deal with it faithfully. When it comes to this passage, we need to be reminded of two things, and this is all I'm going to spend our time on today, and I'm going to spend some time on this. So, settle back and let's think about this before we even get into the nuances and the details of what this scripture is commanding us. Two things that we need to be reminded of. First of all, what is the church, and whose is the church? Up until this part of the passage, we have been dealing more with the informal act of discipline. Verse 17 turns the corner from the informal approach to the formal and official aspects of church discipline because there was an unrepentant sinner in the previous steps and a person has not repented of their sins. So I thought it was important that we rehearse once again and to get it into our own ears and to magnify it in our minds and hearts this morning of what exactly is the church and whose is the church so that we can maintain the right perspective on this issue because the Lord is the one who is giving us, the church, this command. So to have a proper perspective on church discipline, we have to yield ourselves to the scriptural truths of what the church is, and whose it is, and I'd like to actually handle those in reverse order, because the first one will be a lot shorter to deal with, and you already know the answer to that. So the first question: whose is the church? And I think by covering some ground here, it's going to help us once again to get in our minds, to get in our ears, to hear it once again, "Oh yes, 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 yes. So whose is the church? Well, it certainly isn't mine. Heritage isn't mine. It's not the pastors, it's not the sessions. It's not Keith in mine. It's it's not the deacons along with the session and the consistory. And and it's it's not y'all's. It's it's not the congregation's. The church is Christ's. It's Christ's. It's not my church and not your church. We're a part of the church, but it's our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he, the owner and the head of the church, is telling us, the church, what to do with his church, with aberrant members in her pale. So I would like for us to turn back to Ephesians, the passage that we read about just a few minutes ago, and I would like for us to hear once again this very common passage from Ephesians chapter 5, so we can have this revived in in our thoughts this morning as we are approaching this delicate passage, because there's some statements from this epistle that I want us to have magnified in our minds once again this morning on the matter of to whom the church belongs. And the relevant passage I would like to hear from again is that fifth chapter that we read about. And as we come into that passage, let me remind you from verse 32, because Paul himself doesn't want us to miss the point of whom he is speaking. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. Now don't think, and while I was speaking to wives and husbands, I don't want you to think that that was the primary point. See, the primary point is Christ and his church. The the husbands and the wives and the marriage was the beautiful, glorious illustration of Christ and the church. But the main point here is Christ and his church. Now, as he does this, through this beautiful illustration of marriage, in verse 22, he says, "'Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord.'" And then we see that the church is the head of Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. And the wife responds to her head as the church responds to Christ her head. And so we see there in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now Christ leads His church sacrificially. In verse 23, He's the head of the church, and the church belongs to Him. It is His bride. That's the metaphor. And because the church is Christ's, verse 24 says... Therefore, just as the church is subject unto Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands in everything. And so the church is to be subject to Christ in everything. I know oftentimes when we preach this passage, we're talking about to wives, to wives. No, we're talking to the church. Now you, the church, we, the church, are to be subject to our head in everything. And that includes Matthew 18, verse 17. Christ is the head of the church. The church belongs to Christ. Heritage belongs to Jesus because He is the Savior of the body at the end of verse 23b. He's the Savior. He's the head because He's the Savior. He saves us. It is out of Him that we were created and we are in union with Him and He is our head. We are the body. And because the church is Christ. She is to be subject to Him in everything. Now what is the desire of our Lord? Why? Where is this all going? And He's not slacking telling us this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the Word, that He might present to Himself a beautiful bride without spot or blemish or any such thing where it's all going is this desire of his to have his bride arrayed in all of her glory without blemishes to be holy and how he does that is the washing of the water by the word so that the end of that is to present a glorious bride without any wrinkles, without any blemishes, without any spots, and without the use of any makeup. Now, don't overtake my statement there. I'm just saying he's doing this with the water of the word. This is genuinely true. Ladies, you can wear makeup. That's not a statement. <laughs> it's not wearing makeup, okay? We're saying here what Christ is doing to make a reality, not to try to cover up things, but to take all of the blemishes away. The Lord is bent on sanctifying His church. Now with that being the case, clearly seen in this passage, it's not so difficult to accept Matthew 18 and verses 15 through 20 when the head of the church now directs the church about dealing with the membership of those who have gone astray because he has a purpose in mind to have a beautiful bride without spot or blemish or any such thing. So now that we've clearly seen, once again, we've refreshed in our own minds and in our hearts whose is the church, and we've even seen what his desire is for her and for himself with her, let's pick up that second question, we'll spend a little more time in this. What exactly is the church? We've spent some time last year in the vision of the church where we've answered this and in a a more complex way. I'm going to boil it down, just really boil it down for us this morning. And I think we can do so pretty easily. What exactly is the church? Now this is the foundational question to understand in order to know what exactly is the body of Christ that he's sanctifying. It's very important to understand the, the answer to that question. Whatever the body is that Christ is sanctifying, it's the same body over which he is head and for whom he died and is the savior of the body and to whom this instruction is given regarding discipline. So a few questions maybe to just prompt our thinking on this. Is a Bible study of some folks... With other folks across town, is, is that the church? A Bible study, is that the church? Is an organization of Christians gathered together for some specific ministry, is that the church? The, the Navigators, for instance, or Ligonier Ministries, another example Or any other parachurch ministry, can they be considered the church? Or what about a family of Christians where they gather together around the family altar each night and, and perhaps Father even baptizes the children and they break bread together and they drink of wine together? Is that the church? So, what do you think the church is? Because how you think about that will have implications to how you view this entire thing. As we develop the answer to that question, what is the church, I want to draw our attention to the end of this Gospel of Matthew in the 28th chapter. And again, to hear in your hearing once again that very well-known passage from verse 18 onward, in Matthew 8, 28, 18, Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you let's not rush too much i know that just is kind of the, we kind of put that on as the amen right no it's not, the amen hadn't come yet teaching them to observe all things i have commanded you and lo i am with you always even to the end of the age now comes the amen truly okay jesus here claims all authority has been given unto him He has all of the rights of heaven and all of the rights on earth. And since he has all of the rights over all of these things, he commands his apostles to go and make disciples from all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and indoctrinating them to obey everything that Christ has commanded them to obey. That's the totality of the command that he now gives. So whatever the church is, it's an outgrowth of that. And it is a perpetuating of that. So I want to cover this morning four things that the church is. And all four are important and necessary characteristics of what the church is. Number one, the church is made up of disciples of Jesus Christ. The church is made up of disciples of Jesus Christ. Now a disciple is a follower, but it is a learner and a follower. Not a learner by lectures or by conferences. Not a learner by decrees, degrees but a learner by following. Not a learner by certification, but a learner by following. That's a disciple. A disciple is a follower-learner. Now, how does one become a disciple of Jesus Christ? I told you it's going to be very easy, very basic, right? It starts with an understanding and believing of who He is and what He has done for us. As Peter testified back in Matthew 16... That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He testified who Jesus was. And a disciple also believes who Jesus is, and he also believes what Jesus said he was going to do to give his life as a penalty for sin. And a disciple is going to give himself to those facts to the extent that he will obey him and do whatever Jesus asked him to do. He learns by following. He believes to the point, you have to believe to the point, of committing yourself to this one that you say now you're going to follow. I believe and I'm going to follow. And I'm going to learn as I follow. And therefore I have to commit myself to this Jesus and that's a disciple. Following is an act of faith in obedience. Now regenerated people that the Spirit of God has put a new heart in, they will follow Jesus. They will. They just simply will. Because now they can hear the shepherd's voice, and now they go where the shepherd's voice leads them. They hear the shepherd, and they will follow. The church is primarily made up of that kind of people. That's the intention. That is what the objective is. And following Christ then requires obedience. So everyone who belongs to Christ... Is regenerated in the universal church. I know we have terms that we often get tripped up over: universal church, and visible church, and invisible church, and, and yet we're not talking about different churches. But here's where it gets tricky. The New Testament seldomly uses the church in the universal way. Seldomly. There's something true about that, but it seldomly uses it that way. seldomly speaks about it that way. Most of the time, when it uses the term for church, it uses the term for believers in a particular locality in a geographic area. It's a local church. It has embodiment to it. There's many examples throughout all of the Scripture when you read through the Acts and the Epistles. It's to the church in Jerusalem. Acts 8, one To the church which was at Antioch thirteen one The church at Ephesus. Acts 20.17. The church of God which is at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 1. It goes on and on like this. And when the scriptures speak of the local church in a given area, it does so with the definite article, the church. It is the church, not a church. And when Paul addresses the church at Philippi, he does so by greeting the saints who are gathered there along with the elders and the deacons. And what is that that binds a particular people together in a particular locality? When there are thousands of of Christians over a given city, how did they end up in little boxes like these? That's a question. And whatever it was that they end up in little boxes like these, it was a result of the apostles' indoctrination of those disciples to obey the things that Christ has commanded. It's an outflowing, an outworking of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower-learner. And rather than a centralized large group of people in the Middle East, like the Old Testament Israel was for a season, the New Testament church is decentralized into smaller groups in order to universalize the world. So the first thing that the church is, is a group of disciples And those follower-learners of Jesus are characterized then by three other characteristics that make it a church. And so I'd like to go to the second characteristic. When these disciples of Jesus assemble together, there's the second characteristic. The next three characteristics are all going to begin with A's. And we... Helpful for you to remember. It's not my particular outline, but it is something I find helpful. They assemble together. Assembling is the second characteristic of the church. A people called out of the world, the church ecclesia literally means a called out people. They've been called out of the world and to assemble and form a new society themselves themselves with Christ. Christ is the one who has actually called them out. Christ is the one who has assembled them together. Christ is the one who makes a new society of these follower learners. And this corporate assembly of the disciples was a result of the apostles baptizing and teaching and making disciples and indoctrinating these learner followers of what it means to be a learner follower of Jesus and to obey him and all the things that he commanded them. That's why all believers are therefore exhorted not to forsake the, fill the word in, assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some and that very thing is in the context of those of a warning of those who are drawing away from the faith and apostatizing now that assembly is one of the corporate characteristics that makes a church a church but what are they assembled to do And the answer is found in Acts 2.42. Again, I'm keeping it very simple this morning. In Acts 2.42 that you meditated on at the beginning of this service, it says, And they continued steadfastly in four things. The apostles' doctrine, the teaching." They assemble together around these four things. And the first thing is this indoctrination, this teaching which then changes their minds out of the mindset of the world and transforms them in their minds by renewing their minds with the apostles' teaching, with this indoctrination. They continue in this. So therefore the preaching and the teaching of God's word is essential to being a true church. A second thing that they assembled around and together with was fellowship. And they continued steadfastly in this second thing, fellowship. Now this fellowship is the sharing of the things of God together. This fellowship is not having someone over for dinner tonight. Fellowship can happen around that occasion and among that occasion, but that is not what fellowship is. Is. It's much deeper than that. The disciples assemble together to commune with one another as this new society. It's the sharing of life together, and that's why all the one another's of Scripture are part of this partaking of, this communion of, this fellowship of, and that's all the same word. It's the same word we get from communion. They commit continued in the sharing of life together in this new way now, outside of the world, with themselves. It's sharing the spiritual gifts that God has given by this Holy Spirit to every one of those learner followers of His who are now assembled together. And so when you exercise that spiritual gift that every member has, it grows the entire body. And so that sharing together happens in this new society where we function as a single body made of many members, and that's one of the reasons we assemble together. We assemble together to be indoctrinated. We assemble together for this fellowship, this sharing. A third reason we assemble together is they're given for the breaking of bread. And here specifically is revealing or speaking of this right here. One of the reasons we assemble together is for the Lord's table. To share with our head as we are sharing with one another in this new society of the things of God, we now share with our head of the deep spiritual graces with our Savior and with our husband as his followers. The Lord's table is not only the greatest sign of unity for all the baptized disciples of Christ, it is the sacrament that maintains that unity as we assemble together in that sweet mystical union with Christ himself. And why we are exhorted to examine ourselves to make sure that we are not divisive. But the fourth reason we assemble together is Prayer. And prayer is not merely for individual believers. We assemble together to pray. Jesus called the church the house of prayer, the household of prayer. It is this one altar of incense that is then burned in the morning and evening that ascends the smoke into the holy place and even wafts over into the holy of holies that the church is called to be perpetually doing. The morning and the evening were just to show the encapsulation of the the entirety of the day and the continual exercise of what the church is to be about. Christ calls us to assemble to pray. It's important for you to pray individually at home, but it is really important for us to assemble together to pray. That's one of the reasons we assemble. So, so far we have two characteristics of what the church is. I'm going to be like a teacher this morning. Whose is the church? Christ. And there are four things that make a church what it is. When we say, what is a church? The first thing it is, is it is disciples of Jesus Christ, these learner followers, who are then continuing in the obedience of whatever things he has commanded us. And the obedience of those things which he has commanded us have three other characteristics to them, and the first one is assembling. And we assemble around those things and with those things in Acts 2.42, the indoctrination of and we assemble around the, the table of the Lord, and in prayers, and in the fellowship. And the third characteristic of what makes the church the church is agreement. Agreement. The church is the body of Christ in agreement about those things that they are indoctrinated with. The church is called, among other things, a body. And for a body to function as a body, we all have to agree together about what we are indoctrinated with. And we really can't take for granted who leads that body. Jesus led his disciples as he begins now in giving them the the great commission to the apostles. When he ascended on high, he gave to the church apostles and prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. These were gifts to the church. We no longer have apostles and prophets. And we can't take for granted any longer who leads the church. We all have to come to agreement who leads the church. Now Christ is the head, but he's assigned leadership. And where there is no leadership, there is no government of the church. And where there is no government of the church, there is no government. There is no church, that is. But the leadership has to be a particular kind of leadership. And God was not silent to just have us to figure out what kind of leadership that He has assigned for the church to be in agreement over. God has ordained leadership by calling them, affirming them by the church, and ordaining leaders by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, which are just a plural form of elders, by elders. That's the particular kind of leadership that we have to come into agreement with for the government of the church, for the church to be the church. And this is one reason why a house church is not the church. This is one reason why a parachurch ministry is not the church. Even if a parachurch ministry is made up of all Disciple followers of Jesus Christ. Its leadership is usually not ordained ministers. But even if all of the leadership are ordained ministers within a parachurch ministry, that second characteristic that we just, the assembling around those four things, are not true. It's not the church. A church is an assembly of disciples who assemble around the things of Acts 2.42 who are in agreement with who leads the church according to the apostles' doctrine which is the teaching of the scriptures. Then we come to the fourth characteristic of what the church is. And it's not the church is this or that or that. It's all of it at the same time. It's this and this and this and this. This is what the church is. And that fourth and last characteristic of what the church is, it's accountable. It is accountable. It's, the word is accountability here. Disciples who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit are those who hear the shepherd's voice and who follow them. They are learning by following. And in so doing, they voluntarily agree to be accountable. Accountable. Let me me say that one more time. They voluntarily agree to be accountable. Why would they do that? Because that's what God has done in the heart of us all, and that's what the Scripture says, and to be a follower-disciple, a follower-learner, that's what we are to do. As a disciple of Christ, we assemble ourselves together together, To be taught of the scriptures, to share of life together, to worship around the Lord's table together, to pray together. And we all agree together who leads the church under Christ's headship. And all of that, we've made ourselves, every one of us, voluntarily accountable to Christ and to one another. And we are all accountable to one another. That's one of the characteristics that make the church the church. We all have duties and responsibilities to one another. We all understand that we are accountable to one another. In fact, this is one of the things that we try to capsulate or encapture when we have our membership vows. When you have come to Heritage, you say, I want to join Heritage. I'm like, why? Why? Because we like it here. Whatever the reasons are, you want to join heritage. Say, okay, this is a covenantal body. And there are covenant vows, which are really your baptism vows that have been transferred from place to place under the oversight of elders. And then you come here, or perhaps maybe you were, were saved, and then you are baptized here into the church. But the baptism vows are simply, I believe in Bible, okay? And so this is going to be the foundation of what you are going to be in. This is the apostles' teaching, yeah? You're going to continue in the apostles' teaching. I confess because of my sinfulness I cannot say myself. You humble yourself and trust Christ alone. That is being a disciple of Jesus so that you are picking up your cross and you are being a learner follower by, by following him. You acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your sovereign Lord. Do promise and reliance on the grace of Him. To serve Him with all that is in you. To do whatsoever He has commanded you to do. You agree to submit in the Lord and the government to His church. In case you're found delinquent in faith or practice. To heed its discipline. Voluntarily accountable. It's a vow you took. And it's a vow we Must maintain. See we're all accountable to one another. Accountability is a. A wonderful thing. Apart from this. You would go astray. Apart from this. You would. Not be saved normally. Okay. This is part of the very means of grace that God has. Do not forsake yourself together as assembly. Okay. Don't. Don't forsake that. Why? Because you are accountable to one another. And this is what we are to do, to provoke each other to love and good works and to be accountable one to another. And so as we come into this accountability one with another, what are we accountable for? What do we hold each other accountable for? Two main things. We are accountable to one another for the teaching I told you, I'm going to make it very simple. Back to the apostles' teaching. Back to the indoctrination, right? The doctrine of the church, the teachings of Christ, the teaching of the apostles. But we're also accountable one another for the practice of those teachings which we call our life. How we live our life, our behavior. We are to observe whatsoever things Christ has taught us. It's the observance of the teaching which we are also held in account for, not just the teaching, theoretical knowledge in our minds, but the actual living out of those teachings and the observance of being a disciple. See. So what that boils down to is we're accountable to one another for both our faith and our practice. The accountability is really what binds us together in one another, and we do really have the liberty... To look after one another. So no one can say, I think you're being too harsh. Or, I think you're being judgmental. Who are you to call me into question? And the answer to that, you! You made yourself accountable to me and the rest of us when you did it of your own free volition. Yeah, are we there? Are we here? Are we here? Yeah. See, that's that's. It was right of you to do that. It was necessary of you to do that. But remember, when you did that, I thought you meant it. And that's why I'm knocking on your door with two or three others. And that's why I'm taking it to the whole church. Because if you don't straighten out in these aberrant teachings, or whatever it is, I'm not thinking about anything particular here, that we've all agreed upon, we have to hold those things into account for the glory of Christ and the beauty of His bride. In addition to... The reclaiming of the brother who we want to be a part of that glorious body and bride. Now folks, why do I just get back to the very simple basics here? It's because very, there's very little accountability in churches today. The church growth movement has been about the very large churches and these very large places that you can kind of come in and be a part of a larger group with very little or no accountability. In fact, the church growth movement has a largely abandoned accountability deliberately, deliberately. They have been more about the flattery of individuality. More about the individual hurts. More about the individual perceived needs, more about individual's dreams, more about individual successes, and that is where the emphasis is deliberately placed and very little accountability for the self-sacrifice of those individual ambitions for the good of the body. That's accountability. How many times have I told this group over here, you always do what is best for the body of Christ. She knows that script so much because that is the grid work, the filter through which every single one of us must filter and interpret what is best for the body. That's what Christ was thinking. That's what Christ was doing. And he's called us to be a... Follower learner. And so that we have to think, what is best for the body? I have a spiritual gift. Do I use the spiritual gift to edify myself? Paul says, no, in Corinthians, you use your spiritual gift. You will enjoy the use of your spiritual gift, but you are to do it for the edification of the whole, the body, the body, the body. There's very little of this accountability being taught in in, in, in so many churches today, the church in America looks so little, for the most part, of what is being described in the epistles of our New Testament. Very little accountability to any consistent belief or consistent behavior. That's not always been the case. And I, I, as I say that, I want you to understand this in context. am not just harping on Broad evangelical world out there, or even the non-evangelical world that we call Christendom or the church. Let me give you a, a little, a little vignette here. William Warren Sweet has an interesting four-volume set. Four-volume set. He was a Methodist historian, and he did this in the first half of the twentieth century. And this was a result of years of research that he gave in his life to research the business meetings of 18th and 19th century Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Congregationalists across denominational lines. Now, I don't know about you, but spending 15-plus years of my life going back and reading through the minutes of churches over two centuries does not sound very fun obviously he had a calling and a gift for this because we are benefiting from it right now this morning. And he demonstrates in that set by quoting hundreds and hundreds of pages in their actual minutes of these business meetings of these churches across denominational barriers that the single most common topic of their business meeting was maintaining The standards of behavior through disciplining of their members. And that is quite remarkable. That shows you the contrast, by and large, of where we are today. They were preoccupied in maintaining accountability on what we agreed upon. And this is essential to the unity in the life of the church. That's the background that the Lord is giving direction to in Matthew 18 as He comes into this passage. If they don't listen to you, and they don't listen to others, take it to the church. If they don't listen to them, get the old leaven out that you may be a new love. So the church is Christ. It's it's not ours. We don't have to figure out what we are to do and not to do. We are to obey the Lord, and we learn in this in following. That's how Jesus learned, learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And we're going to learn about Jesus and his church by being a learner follower and being obedient to what he commands us. And he commands us in Matthew 18 to do this hard and difficult thing for his great name's sake. It is his church, and his objective is to sanctify her with the washing of the water by the word, to present himself a beautiful bride in all of her glory. So the church herself is this. The church is a collective body of baptized followers of Jesus Christ that regularly assembles in his name, who are in agreement about what he taught, and who are accountable to each other under scriptural leadership for the teaching and for the practice of that church. And with this understanding and agreement on these points and our willingness to make ourselves accountable to each other, that's why we are here. That's what makes us who we are. And it means that we are closer bound together here more than any other kind of arrangement with any other Christian people. And with this covenantal understanding of what makes the church the church and whose is the church, Christ, her head, we are now really more prepared to consider the command for us to formally and officially discipline aberrant members so that his bride can be without spot or blemish. This is following all those things whatsoever he has taught us to obey and follow. And that is where we'll pick it up next time in Matthew 18. We have to come to this place of ownership and understanding before we can move on. May God give us the grace and help. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the instruction you give us about your church, Christ's church. His glorious bride, his inheritance, the body for which he has died and the Savior for which he gave his life sacrificially in love. And We ask that you would take this scriptural passage as well as the message this morning and bring forth fruit from it that would unify this church around the apostles' teaching and around the apostles' practice. and we would be unified together in agreement as we assemble together for these glorious truths that we read of in Acts 2.42. And as we're about to come to the table shortly, we pray that we would come in unity of spirit one with another and communion with our Lord. Knowing that we stand upon the shoulders of those who've gone before us, teaching us these teachings. And as we bind ourselves in this community, doing the one another's and fellowshipping with life, and the life of our Savior with us, and as we pray, we we give ourselves willingly and voluntarily to be accountable one to another. And we pray, Lord, we would be faithful as we assemble and as we agree and as we're accountable as faithful follower-learners of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen.